Welcome to Money and Meaning, a podcast where we connect with people around the world who are working to unlock the power of markets for impact. I'm Robert Munson, president of SOCAP Global. This podcast series is hosted by SOCAP Global and the Sorensen Impact Institute. SOCAP Global convenes the largest and most diverse community in impact through live and digital experiences that educate, spur conversation, and inspire investment and positive impact. We work under the leadership of the Sorensen Impact Institute, which helps organizations achieve their impact vision. The Institute is proudly housed at the University of Utah's David Eccles School of Business. Each episode of Money and Meaning features stories of amazing people who are leveraging the power of capital markets for the betterment of people and planet in a just and sustainable way. In part, by taking lessons he learned from his parents, my guest today, Jim Sorensen, founder of the Sorensen Impact Group, has become one of the true giants in the global field of impact. From his tremendous success as an entrepreneur in the private sector, to his leading foundation, to informing and influencing groundbreaking public policy, and now through the Sorensen Impact Group, Jim has established himself as an undeniable leader in our space many times over, and he continues to innovate and to expand the market. What is striking and inspiring is how Jim does all of this with incredible grace and humility. In this conversation, we'll talk about how his childhood, his experiences in life and business, and his vision for a better and more hopeful tomorrow have informed his leadership style and inspired his many accomplishments in the world, which he, of course, credits to his collaboration with others around the world. Jim will play a prominent role at SOCAP this year. You'll hear from him and other conversations like this at SOCAP 23, our next flagship event held in October of 23 in San Francisco. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y, M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SoCapGlobal.com. We hope to see you there. Jim Sorensen, thank you for joining the Money and Meaning podcast today. Uh, You and I will be in San Francisco in just a couple of weeks for the 2023 uh, edition of SoCap, and I'm looking forward to seeing you there. I'm looking forward to it as well. It's always a great uh, time of year, beautiful time of year in San Francisco, and uh, it'll be great to have everyone there. It is. It's uh, 15 years or so running as a conference and a convening, uh, still one of the largest in in the world, and you will play a a prominent role uh, in the the conference, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, your sessions and the things that are interesting to you uh, at, at SOCAP, but I kind of wanted to start with the place that you and I are currently in, which is Utah. Um, I'm a recent transplant, one of many, many recent transplants to this great state. You, uh, as far as I know, are born and raised in Utah. This is where you are from. This is where you were raised. This is the place that you know best. Um, our mutual friend Zita Cobb says, uh, the answers are always in the place. And I, I wonder, <laughs> Uh, Jim, when you think about Utah, uh, and it's rather progressive, if I can use that term, in a conservative state uh, perspective on impact, I was pretty shocked 
when I first moved here and and saw all of the things that are going on in both the private and the public sector and impact investing in this state. What is it about Utah that positions it to have become kind of a hub of impact, both in this country and around the world? Well, uh, I think Utah is a great place. Uh, and it's Utah is well known for, I think, innovation and entrepreneurism. Um, Utah is also at the top of the list in terms of giving and, and volunteerism. I think when you combine these uh, attributes, uh, it creates an environment for those that, that live here, and, and particularly for me, uh, to recognize the value, importance, and opportunity around impact investing and uh, you know the innovation that can be uh, put to work for good uh, in our society. And, uh, you know, that has really driven a lot of the, um, um, I, I would say, the ethos that I have and others have um, in the creation of the Sorensen Impact Center, which has recently been elevated to an institute within the University of Utah. Robert, you're a big part of that. Congratulations. And um, we're really excited about um the growth and the prospects for growth. But again, I think Utah um, has these attributes that have enabled it to recognize the importance of impact investing. We work at a space, uh, Jim, that requires amplification for impact um, on a global scale. And that always starts in a place. And, and here it starts for us in Utah. Uh, what is it do you think that maybe other states could learn from the experiences that the state of Utah has had with an impact. Obviously, there's very uh, robust economy in Utah. Not every state enjoys that economic success, but are there other sort of uh, earmarks that you see within how maybe government works in the state, how business works in the state? Is there, is there something to be learned that could be amplified across the other 49 states? I, I think there is. I and I would really start with um, you know the leadership at the University of Utah, um, who recognized the value around impact investing. It was a term that when we uh, endowed the uh, the center, when I did in in uh, two thousand, I guess it was around two thousand thirteen, maybe two thousand twelve. Yeah, but that that term really hadn't been around, so it was kind of a new term. But the dean of the business school at that time saw, uh, I think, the vision and potential. That dean is now the president of the University of Utah, and um, he has a different outlook than I think maybe others that, that others could learn from, and that is he sees what the university does and its mission. And um, he measured it in terms of the impact to the community in the state. Um, and there's a lot of things that a university can do to impact for good, particularly university that has a health center like the University of Utah, um, and measure the impact. And I think that that has permeated and really created, I think, an environment here that could be really um, 
you know, a formula that could work in other parts of, of the state as higher institutions of learning that are usually the vanguard of, you know, new thought, uh, new research, new ideas, you know, and progress. Um, and also are educating the next generation uh, can advance and then ultimately, you know, build on that in, in, in their respective communities and states. It's interesting because, and I, we're, we're talking of, of President Taylor Randall of the University of Utah at the moment, who I think the quote is, uh, the mission is to be a top 10 public university with unsurpassed societal impact which gives you a sneak peek into the ambition uh, that the president has and the bold vision that you both that you both share. But these things take a lot of collaboration. This isn't a light switch to have large institutions like flagship universities, to have state governments, state leaders of different maybe political perspectives combined with private sector expertise. Uh, these are relationships, I imagine, that have to be built over time. Um, what do you see in the work that you all have done that's created an environment in which this sort of positive collaboration, frankly, is even possible, um, where we see um, maybe a little bit of the opposite around the country, where people are not necessarily working together so much as they are working against each other? Well, I, I think collaboration is key. I mean, if you really want to move the needle, um, you've got to engage. Um, good policy, so government, you've got to um, have the, the philanthropic community engaged, um, the, the nonprofits that uh, serve those that um, uh, are less fortunate and underserved, um, and then you've got to engage investors, you've got to engage um, academia. Uh, and when you can do that in a collaborative way, and it really, the key to that is alignment and um, building mutual respect and trust within these organizations. Um, that's the playbook that we work from um, as we have in the, in the various initiatives uh, worked to, for example, the Opportunity Zone legislation, um, which really the uh, uh, I had some involvement in, uh, it was good policy. We felt like it had the potential to really address um, in a more sustainable way, uh, you know, communities that were disadvantaged, that, uh, that uh, were distressed, uh, that were lacking investment, where there'd been a declining trend in terms of uh, job creation and uh, new companies and dynamism. Um, that involved good policy. It involved bringing, you know, capital into the, into the, uh, from the uh, private investment. Uh, it involve, involves the community. Community's got to be at the core of this uh, to make sure that you're meeting the needs of the community. Uh, and when you do that, there are nonprofits that are often engaged and, and uh, you know, other funders. So it's a good example of the type of collaboration that has moved, you know, really tens of billions of dollars into these distressed communities. 
Um, I would submit to Jim that another requirement uh, in this recipe would be leadership. And you mentioned uh, the university president, but uh, you yourself are a recognized pioneer and leadership in the space. And I guess I see myself as a student of leadership and I'm fascinated to learn from people like yourself who have been successful on the highest levels. Um, you've been successful in the private se sector, successful with your foundation. You're called on to be a leader in our field, to testify before Congress, help shape some of that policy you talk about. I'm curious what maybe in your in your makeup and in your character do you see that um, uh, maybe helps you in, in your leadership approach? And then you know, what have you learned along the way um, that's helped you grown into a leader that, that you are today? Well, first of all, thank you for the, for that compliment. I mean, I, I, I that's very uh, meaningful to me. Uh, and we need good leaders. Um, I suppose, as I look at my own life and what's led to where I'm today, uh, you know, I've already had great leaders and examples in my life. Um, you know, from my father, who helped mentor and put me in positions and opportunities to lead. Um, you know, he really had a business background. He was very entrepreneurial um, and very innovative. So I, I was able to, to learn from that. To my mother, um, who on the other side of the spectrum radiated compassion, inclusion, and building a sense of belonging and faith in others that is really a, a part of good leadership. Um, and I think the key to, um, you know, scaling uh, any kind of business or, you know, enterprise is building new leaders and recognizing the qualities in others uh, and then, you know, having faith and giving them opportunity for leadership. And that's been a part of uh, what I've done all my life because you can't do it on your own. You have to uh, really bring in good teams and provide a, a, an environment where they can grow and um, you know they can succeed in in what they do. Do you, Jim, subscribe to any particular leadership methodology or style, or is it just one that you've developed over time? Uh, for yourself, you mentioned you learned a lot from your father, for instance. I'm curious if there's a, a management style that you saw in him that maybe you see in yourself, too. Well, I think my dad had a keen uh, ability to see in people, um, even those people that may not have a degree or um, have a direct experience. I'll, I'll give you an example. As an entrepreneur, my dad had um, <laughs> different businesses. He had um, he had a lingerie factory, <laughs> and he had uh, one of his um, workers in the lingerie factory was very good at keeping the sewing machines running. And he could build little jigs. He could. He was just innovative. Uh, he didn't really have a college degree. Um, and, but, but dad recognized in him, um, these abilities on the other side, 
of the factory, he was starting a medical device business. And uh, in that, there was a lot of injection molding. There was a lot of uh, assembly. And um, he elevated and gave the opportunity to this sewing machine maintenance um, to come in and be a director because he was able to solve problems. And uh, he was he was more innovative in being able to envision, you know, the solution than than those that had had degrees. Um, but recognizing and including and bringing in and building, uh, you know, a team, um, I think is key to good leadership. You mentioned your mother too, um, and the compassion and inclusion that she modeled for you. I, I I have to guess that that has a significant influence and in your journey to impact. Um, this is a roughly 10-year-old field. Um, you are one of the pioneers, as I mentioned, in the field itself. And, and I've heard you talk, uh, Jim, multiple times about individuals in your life and in your father's life who have showed great promise beyond their existing reality. And you've invested in that, and your father has an invest has invested in that. And as you sort of mirror your mother's compassion toward others and, and the idea of inclusivity, um, I wonder within the field of impact, your perspective on decision making uh, from an allocator's perspective, from a funding perspective, um, we make decisions that move capital to solve very large problems. Uh, and sometimes the people making those decisions aren't necessarily the people that best understand the problems. So how do we marry um, these these two things together and how do you see those working together? Yeah, I, I think my mother had really a fundamental uh, empathy. And, um, you know, she she loved everyone. Um, she was most effective around her kitchen table. Where she would bring in different people and she wanted to serve. There was always really a good meal around a business uh, meeting. My mother's passion, she had really three passions, children, education, and the arts. And uh, she spent the last really 20 years of her life building a program here in the state of Utah that has really uh scaled throughout the state to all, I would say about 70% of the schools in the state of Utah that enable children to, uh, to learn through art, the core subjects of, you know, language, uh, mathematics, so forth, uh, a more well-rounded education. And it's been really successful, had great outcomes, but she had her own passion and her own style and, and, uh, it really involved loving other people and including them and bringing them in. And, um, you know, that's something that I think st stuck with me. Um, as I look at the needs in the world today and what we face in terms of, you know, the, 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 the problems and the particularly those that don't have opportunity. I think that um, it's a rich opportunity for impact investing 
and a, a tremendous opportunity for good. When I say rich opportunity, I think it can generate market rate returns. And, um, uh, and, and while it is, you know, helping to reduce barriers or provide opportunities or uh, address social problems. And, you know, that's always resonated with me, um, you know, in the, in the various endeavors that I've been involved in. Let's let's talk about the world a little bit. Um, there's, I guess, a lot to be somber about. There are some estimates that uh, we won't achieve the UN sustainability goals in the next 100 years, much less by 2030. Uh, if we keep going at our current rate, uh, I'm wondering from from your perspective, how do you grapple with with some of that, some of those realities? There's been great success. Uh, and great progress in many areas. And, and then there's obviously a lot of work to do. Um, you seem to me as, as a man who sees um, promise in individuals and hope in the world. I think it'd be very difficult to do this work if you did not. Where do you see that hope right now? Where do you see the promise? Yeah, I, first of all, I am uh, one that sees the glass half full. <laughs> I've always been that way. Um, so, and, and I would also say that I think 2030 was a pretty aggressive goal, but I think we need aggressive goals. Um, where I see and where I'm encouraged, uh, is really in the next generation and the importance that they place on social good. When I see the students that come through the Institute, um, and the work that they do and what drives them, they'll put in many times, uh, you know, many extra hours a week uh, in the work that they do that they're not necessarily getting uh, credit for. They're, they're doing this at the same time that many of them are working and have a full, you know, load of, of you know, school hours that they're uh, also needing to, to address. So tremendously motivated and intelligent, right, uh, you know, next generation. And um, so I, that, I think, has really encouraged me. I'm, I'm also encouraged. Um, you know, when we formed the Sorensen Impact Foundation, the maturity of the space uh, was such that it was not ready for us to make the leap of aligning the corpus of the foundation. That is the other 95%, give away five. You've got 95% that generate generates a return so you can continue giving away a five. That corpus of the foundation, uh, we didn't, we weren't ready to uh, make it fully aligned with the purposes or the impact uh, of the foundation. But in a relatively short period of time, so we founded this in, in 2012, uh, about 2017, you know, we felt like there were enough investable funds and managers and uh, direct uh, investments that we could make that leap. And it took us about uh, four years to do that, but we were able to uh, completely align uh, to 100% of the corpus in, uh, in various funds across asset classes for impact and beating the benchmark in terms of returns. 
while you know reaching over uh, probably uh, 600 million people at this point in time uh, uh, for some form of, of impact. So <laughs> these um, <clears throat> give me hope. And we see others now taking this same path. We um, have established an advisory to help others to be able to do the same thing, the sorts of impact advisory, uh, because we know it can be done. And um, we see the interest and the desire of others to want to do the same. This gives me hope. And, um, and I think that as this flywheel grows, as this marketplace becomes more efficient, as we develop the ecosystem to have more, more and more products and funds and opportunities for investment, um, that you know, we will reach this, uh, this goal. You've, you've said you're a glass half full person and, and you clearly also have some source of endless energy because you, you keep building, you keep going. And now you are, are, are modeling uh, evidence of market rate versus concessionary returns in the space. And I, I'd love to know uh, why that's so important to you and why you believe it's so important to the space and, and how we can expect that evidence to help scale growth and expand the marketplace in general. Yeah, first of all, I think uh, it's important that you have both types of capital, concessionary as well as market rate. Um, and we are involved in both, you know, the foundation on the, on the, uh, the, the 5%, much of our uh, giving is in the form of program related investments, which are, you know, by design concessionary, very early stage proof of concept, really uh, with the goal of helping a, a company or social enterprise get to a point where it's ready for market rate capital. We've had companies that have gone through our, our PRI program and we've ultimately made MRI or market rate investments in them because they've grown up, they're now investable. And so there's that um, spectrum that's really important uh, and I think differentiates impact investing. I think the other opportunity here is uh, financial innovation, where you can utilize a concessionary grant, or it could be some form of, of government, um, um, you know, investment in a blended capital stack that helps to um, leverage in market rate capital to make uh, an investment or a, a, a deal makes uh, sense that might not otherwise come to pass. So you're meeting the objectives of all of the stakeholders or investors in this in a collaborative way and addressing a problem that wouldn't have been addressed otherwise. And that I think is the real promise and opportunity when you can get everybody together in um, the collaboration that I spoke about earlier. Uh, in terms of, uh, you know, addressing problems that uh, require that kind of collaboration to move the needle. Your work with, with students at the university and, and outside of the university, you get to see the light bulb go off, right, in, in a student's head when they see this promise and this opportunity to 
do good while doing well. And for a lot of young people, that's not been presented to them as an option. It's sort of been one or the other. And they get into business school uh, or into finance and and somewhere along the way, particularly here at the University of Utah, they're exposed to this idea of impact. And it's amazing uh, to see this almost physical change in a student when they feel like there's an opportunity to align their passions that they have for the world, as well as their passions they have for their own careers and enterprises. I'd like to maybe give an example, Robert, if I yeah, could. Yeah, please, um, please. We had fairly early on a student, uh, his name was Anders Abo, and Anders was from Norway. Uh, he was at the University of Utah. He came and, and got involved as one of the students in the center and uh, really distinguished himself to where he ultimately was brought on as staff, uh, helping other students and uh, lending of his experience. Anders um, was recognized by the um, government of Norway for his expertise and was hired away from the center to go to help run the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the, the, the impact investing in, in that fund. And uh, I just recently learned that Anders within the Sovereign Norwegian Wealth Fund had set up a fund of primarily concessionary capital that would be utilized in, in a blended capital stack to help uh, the, the needs and the, and the opportunities for uh, small uh, you know, farm holders in, in Africa, small farmers in Africa. So a, a tremendous opportunity that really helped uh, the programming at, at the center and the, now the institute helped this, this student ultimately to uh, achieve this great opportunity and and uh, in this space and really making a difference. Yeah, it's, it's a great thing and an inspiring thing. And I, I think you're right. There is um, uh, there's hope within the, the hearts and the minds of young people and that that next generation that's coming up sees the world a little bit differently than perhaps you and I did when we were their age. And so much of that uh, is exposed at, at universities. It's exposed, hopefully, within their their workplaces as well. There's also a, a kind of a distraction maybe going on, a parallel conversation um, around things like ESG and woke capitalism. Um, I'm I'm curious, do you see those? those conversations as distractions for our work? Or should we be leaning into that uh, narrative correction, if you will, uh, when it comes to the debate, the kind of politicization of some of this? How, how do you see this, again, this parallel conversation that seems to be going on in the mainstream media? Well, I, I think it's probably a little of both. So I think it is a distraction. I think that clearly um, it's, it's being utilized for a, a political purpose. Um, I am listening to the candidates. I'm hearing what's out there. I'm not hearing as much around this this topic. Um, in fact, I it's rarely brought up. Um, and I think that that could be because 
um, the public really is is not reson- that message is not resonating with the public, um, the mainstream public. Um, and in fact, um, you know, ESG investing, sustainable investing, um, I think is in a good place. Uh, I think obviously it can get better. Um, I think that there are, uh, you know, examples that aren't the, the best examples in that space. But the notion of using in your investment decisions risk factors around um, environmental risks, you know, social risks, and governance risks really are uh, really a, a, a better and an important form of, of investing, better investing. I mean, risk is something that you measure when you make uh, investments. And these these clearly are potential risks. We've seen that in our own experience. Um, I think that the need is for greater education. And uh, I think that uh, this is going to fade away over time. That's that's interesting. Even with an election on the horizon, and uh, you have been watching that closely, um, how do you see the election impacting our work? How do you see um, our field as we move forward uh, in terms of our involvement with politics? Do we stay away from it? Is it are we hands off in the in the world of politics? Do we get more involved? Uh, you've worked in fields. I've worked in fields that are very heavily involved in in campaigns and and politics because they result in elected officials who result in public policy. And do we do we get involved in that enough? Or are we too nascent of an industry? What does that What does that look like to you? No, I I think we have gotten involved on the policy side, um, and the the initiatives that I've been involved in um, have been bipartisan. In fact. Uh, one of the few examples of bipartisan, the Opportunity Zone legislation, um, was was a bipartisan uh, legislation. Um, we're looking at uh, legislation right now that is bipartisan that focuses on employee ownership and uh, uh, motivating and incentivating uh, employee ownership. You know, ownership of a business is uh, one of one of the two key areas of wealth building and many people are left out of that so uh, this is I think an opportunity for prosperity for everybody and that resonates across the aisle um, so I think there are many opportunities where good policy that uh, utilizes the principles of impact investing can be put in, into into play do you see growth and awareness with um, elected officials and impact? Is there still quite a bit of work to do? You, One thing a lot of folks may not know about you is that you, you are quite involved in helping to shape public policy and inform elected officials, both on a state and federal level. Um, are you confident that the message is getting out? How much more work is left to be yeah. done? Is it just ongoing? I think we have to be careful in the messaging because there are keywords that will automatically trigger a response. Uh, And you know that better than anyone, uh, Robert. So I think that that, that's really an important thing. But in my experience, I have found on both sides of the aisle, 
that um, there is an interest in you know solving problems, and one may have a different uh, uh, approach than the other, but the notion of uh, eliminating barriers, creating opportunity, and uh, you know engaging capital from um, you know the mainstream capital markets. Uh, resonates and, and utilizing free enterprise to um, help those with a hand up, maybe not with a handout, but with a hand up that that have the the potential but are locked out locked out of the opportunity. You know that that resonates with uh, you know members of, of both parties. I want to look ahead. Um just a couple of weeks ahead, if I can, to SOCAP. And um, you're an investor in SOCAP. You've gone to many SOCAPs. You've you've participated not just in, in SOCAP as a convening, but convenings all over the world. And as a convener myself, I, I'd love to hear your perspective on impact convenings, maybe why they are important, uh, maybe even why they aren't as important as we think they are sometimes, and how you see the space, which is grown exponentially. If there were 50 impact convenings two years ago, there are 300 now, and there will be 600 next year. Um, why do we convene? Why is it important? Well, I think of 600 convenings, think of, of the work behind all of those convenings. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is the <laughs> you're, you're one that would yeah. really understand that. I do, um, I do. You know, I, th I, I, think it's, I think it's exciting. Um, it, it is a sign that um, you know we've come of age, I suppose. Um, I love SoCap because SoCap is really, in my opinion, the big tent. You know, we really bring in uh, probably one of the largest, if not the largest, audience, um, and kind of from all sectors. Um, so I'm encouraged with you know the convenes. And and now you see kind of a degree of specialization. So in SOCAP, you know, we we address a lot of things for a lot of people, um, but other convenings may focus on uh, a particular type of investor or, you know, a, a particular, uh, you know, sector of impact. Um, and so, you know, that in my mind is um, is a good thing. Yeah, I, I, I think the the growth and impact convenings is is clearly mirroring the growth of the field um, and, and addressing some needs that are out there. When SOCAP started 15 years ago, uh, well, the term didn't even exist at the time. And so it was a pretty radical notion to begin with. And it, it has that legacy. And, and as you said, it is a lot of things to a lot of, of people. And so it maintains this balance, or at least tries to maintain this balance of reflecting the mainstream of, of impact, uh, while also being a space for new ideas and new innovations with, you know, 25, 2,700 people coming. Um, we calculated, Jim, last year that roughly half of the participants at SOCAP were new. It was their first SOCAP, um, which I think is a great thing because it, it shows that there's a place for new entry into impact. and. For the field to grow, for the market to grow, we need we need new people, we need new industries. 
where do those where do those people need to be coming from right now? Who do, who should we be reaching out to? Uh, what industries do we need to bring into impact into that lens? Well, I think it's great. You know the the progress. I think where we could really make inroads. I'd love to see more inroads. Would be uh, what I'd call the institutional capital. Um, you know, pension endowment. Um, these are bigger checks, so and and they typically have more gatekeepers, and um, they're they're less. Um, I mean, I think there's we're seeing some inroads here, but I think ultimately to be able to engage institutional capital is going to be a real sign of, of maturity for this space. And I'd, I'd love to see more of that, more of those uh, players uh, coming to convenings like SOCAP, or there, there may be convenings that are specifically oriented to them. And they need to, because really the next generation, the inheritors of wealth, uh, you know, Aligning their values with their investment decisions is important to them. What are the barriers there, Jim, for for institutional participation in the field that you see? Um, again, I think you have a lot of gatekeepers, and typically they write very big checks. So, you know, if they're going to go through a process um, and allocate capital, they're going to want to allocate fifty, hundred million or even more and that is you know a, a sign of maturity if you get to a point where you can absorb that capital and so you know as we develop more more funds more more uh, more products so to speak they're investable of that size it'll make it easier for them to engage well, Jim, I'm looking forward to uh, not only seeing you, but uh, hearing your exciting conversation that you're going to have uh, um, at SOCAP. You'll be talking with uh, Elaine Martin and Tracy Palingen and Fran Siegel, and uh, I think talking about innovations in the space and the future of the space. So that's going to be a great uh, panel for our audience to join and hear you talk a little bit more about how you see impact. Uh, I appreciate your time today, Jim. This is a great exciting and, and insightful conversation. Uh, any closing thoughts for us today? No, I would just say that I, I always look forward to SOCAP because I see people that I, I wouldn't see otherwise or haven't seen since the last SOCAP. And uh, it, it's just a great place. Uh, you know, if you think of the uh, Serengeti and the proverbial watering hole, <laughs> where all of the uh, the animals come and converge. Uh, that's what I think of when I think of SoCal. That's funny. I, I'm uh, this is reflective of my upbringing in the Deep South. I'm, I'm a native Louisianian, so I I think of SoCal as a front porch where everyone uh, from the neighborhood gathers together and catches up a bit. So uh, I think either approach, we get to the yeah, same result either. and. Uh, uh, yeah, that that's one of the beautiful things about about SoCap. So, uh, thanks again, Jim, for and, your time and, today, and and congratulations to your team for the great work that you're doing 
and I'm really looking forward to this year's SoCal. Well, thank you. We'll see you in San Francisco in just a couple of weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. If you were inspired by the conversation and are interested in getting more involved with the SOCAP community, join us at SOCAP 23 in October. As a podcast listener, you can save $50 off the current ticket price with the code MONEYMEANING23. That's all caps, M-O-N-E-Y-M-E-A-N-I-N-G-2-3. Register at SOCAPglobal.com. We look forward to seeing you in October. And be sure to subscribe to Money and Meaning wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of our next episode's release.